Welcome, Baruchim Habaim. Welcome to Awakening Torah, Musar Mindfulness. This week being Awakening Vayachi, the last parasha Torah portion of the Hebrew Bible of the section of Bereshit of Genesis, known as Vayachi. And uh, it took place yesterday on Shabbat, on the Jewish Sabbath. On Saturday, January 7th, 2023, which was Yud Dalid of Tevet, Tafshen Pe Gimel of the Hebrew year, 5783. Today is Sunday, June 8th. This is our 11th sitting together. I think it's 11th. Let me just confirm. Maybe it's 12th. One, two, three. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Oh, it's twelfth. I correct that. It's our twelfth sitting. There are twelve uh, parshiot in the Rashid in um, the Book of Genesis. And uh, before we begin, I always introduce who I am. What is the institute? Uh, what are we doing here? What is this project? And we move into our kavana, our intention for today's practice. So. I am Rabbi Chasia Uriel Steinbauer, the founder and director of the Institute for Holiness, Kehilat Musar, where we offer three tracks of practice and learning in ancient traditions of Judaism and Theravada Buddhism. The first track is strictly Judaism in the form of Musar, practice in groups called Vadim and practicing that lifelong path towards holiness. The middle path, the golden mean, is the integration of Musar and mindfulness from both ancient traditions, where we learn from the insight and wisdom of both in our daily practice. And the third tract is just strictly the Dharma, um, mindfulness and meditation practice in the Sangha, where we head that way on taking refuge in the teachings and the practice. And so all are welcome. Uh, we are based here in Yisrael and Haaretz, uh, but we offer what we teach and the teachings and the traditions uh, online on Zoom and in groups to the whole world. So do be in touch with us from the website of Kehilat Musar and uh, do subscribe to the newsletter and also our YouTube channel where we are live streaming right now. You're welcome to join us there, also on Facebook, Twitter, and here on Zoom together. Uh, during this dedicated Be'erek, about 45 minutes together, that we dedicate to this time and practice together. So let's move in into our kavana, our intention for today's practice, which I'm going to pull up and share screen with those of you who are watching video, okay? So you should see before you a beautiful purple-ish document uh, with beautiful flower. For those of you who are uh, listening on podcasts and audio, you will hear me read these kavanot, these intentions for today's practice. So we say we see this practice right now as really doing an act of self-care. So we say that this is something I am doing. This is my kavanah, my intention to strengthen my own soul in order to be of benefit to others in the future kind of as our uh, overarching um, mission statement as Jews and as practitioners of this path of Musar mindfulness, 
we follow Rabbi Shimon Shkop's uh, insight in what he shares in Sharei Yosher, uh, where in the introduction, where he says that our greatest uh, impulse, our greatest desire, the ratzon, the will, even the yetzer, should be that we want to bring God's good to others, that we want to benefit others. And so we work on cultivating that and strengthening that in community uh, to be on this path together. So the second kavana, the second intention we say, because we're doing this also on behalf of others. We say, this is something I'm doing to strengthen my relationship to others so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. And the third kavanah, the third intention for today's practice is to strengthen our relationship with the divine. However we define the divine, however we are in relationship with what we call the divine. We say, this is something I'm doing to strengthen my relationship with the creator, with the one of all being that we are all united so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. So it's really cultivating this deep inner witness and the skills, the wise discernment and practice to be upright, to be right on the path, to really be aware of when I'm needed and how I can be of service. So may, may we all right now merit this in today's practice together. So what is it that we do here at Awakening Torah, Musar Mindfulness? We look at the weekly Torah portion from yesterday, Zvat Hashem, God willing. And we look at it from the lens of Musar Mindfulness. What can we learn from this? What do our ancestors want us to get from this? What can we apply into our daily practice to gain that, that strength and that insight into being the best version of ourselves? So this is what we do. So first, I'm going to give a summary of this week's Torah portion, Vayachi, and then I will delve in to some specific area that we can take and apply. And then I move us into a guided mindfulness meditation around this for us to then uh, close. There's always opportunity for question and answer for those of us who join live on Zoom. So you're always welcome week to week, every Sunday excuse me, at 12.30 Eastern Standard Time. So this week's Parsha. After 17 years now in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, if you recall, our ancestors, Yaakov and his whole family, also known as Yisrael, go down to Egypt during a famine to meet Yosef, who is second in command in Egypt, who is attempting to feed and take care of the whole population in Egypt uh, so that the people can survive a famine. So his ancestors, his family, um, leave essentially their ancestral land and the land of Canaan at the time and head south to Egypt, to Mitzrayim, to survive the famine. And uh, they spend 17 years there now uh, a long time, the famine's over, and they're still dwelling there. Yaakov, the father of Yosef, feels that his life is coming to an end. He's the first person ever recorded in the Torah, uh, and maybe the only, uh, who is described as sick, as uh, 
heading towards transition because of illness. And um, he essentially his son and grandsons come to him, Yosef and his sons Ephraim and Menashe uh, to visit their dying grandfather and father. And he blesses the two sons. And uh, Yosef purposely, if you recall back to blessings and birthright, something Yaakov is deeply intimately aware of, uh, has experience with. If you recall, he's the one that um, essentially manipulated the cell of uh, the birthright from his brother Esav, his twin, and then stole the blessing by um, <clears throat> dressing up and pretending he was Esav based on his mother's uh, command. And so he's well aware of being the youngest. He came out second from the delivery of the twins, um, the birthing of the twins. And uh, it was supposed to be Esau who was to receive the birthright and the blessing. And, and here, uh, Yaakov usurps it based on the command of his mother, which obviously in rabbinic exegesis, uh, most see that she was a Nivia, she was a prophet, she knew that he was to receive this, she was even told by God that um, the youngest would essentially, in, in some ways, receive this uh, blessing birthright. So here we come to the scene 17 later in Egypt, uh, 17 years later, where Yosef, also who was the youngest before Benjamin came along, deeply aware of the strife and hatred and jealousy that develops in families when the youngest is favored by a parent. And that's how Yaakov treated Yosef in front of all the other brothers um, from the previous 30 something years. So um, Yosef uh, places uh, Menashe at uh, Yaakov's right hand because he's the firstborn and should receive the blessing uh, for the firstborn and Ephraim at Yaakov's left side. But Yaakov actually crosses his hands and places them opposite. This disturbs Yosef. He even says this amazing language that this is not right, Abba. This is not what is done. Someone deeply aware of his moral compass and tries to live by it. He is an example of someone who deeply practices. We covered this last week. So he... Um, Yaakov, in his uh, practice of humility, acknowledges, I know, I know, in a sense, like, I know you're right. <laughs> I know. And, and it was an and moment, not a but, an and moment of uh, this is what is to be done. I'm aware, uh, in some ways, uh, the way it gets interpreted by rabbinic tradition, he is aware that the youngest here is to be greater and to receive the blessing of the firstborn. So he gives his final message then to, after he blesses them, Yaakov, he gives a, a final message to all of his sons, um, some of them blessings, some of them poetry and statements, and some of them clearly not blessings, the opposite, where he finally uh, shares in some ways, um, grievance that he's carried and felt for many years. This is a family that, as you'll recall, is dysfunctional, does not communicate openly and honestly, um, carries deep trauma and uh, um, secrets 
that actually uh, harm them over time. And so Yaakov uh, shares some of this on his deathbed. So he goes on to instruct his children to bury him in a ma'ara back up in the, the ancestral land, the land of Canaan in the field of Machpelah. And this is where Leah, his, uh, one of his wives, is uh, buried, including his parents, as you'll recall, of Yitzhak and Avraham, and uh, grandparents, obviously. They were already buried there. So Yaakov goes ahead and passes, uh, transitions uh, to join the ancestors in Hashem. And his whole family in Egypt mourn for him. And they bury him just as he asks. They actually do uh, carry him up to the ancestral land. And um, Yosef's brothers then face a wake-up call after the patriarch who held everything together in silence passes. So to become deeply aware of the ancient Near East, of our ancestors, uh, the patriarch is the one who determines everything. So much so that here he even adopts uh, the children of Yosef as if they're his own in order to pass on uh, ancestral land. And um, when he passes, there's a newfound awareness among the brothers of the situation that they're in, that there is no longer the patriarch who will uh, possibly cause um, and, and does cause the, the, the pause, the containment of potential violence between brothers because it wouldn't be permitted or acceptable. So the brothers um, suddenly have pachad, have fear that Yosef is going to take revenge on them. And Yosef uh, becomes aware of this because they actually send a messenger. Again, this is the family who doesn't communicate directly to one another. They send a messenger to deliver the message that their, their Abba, their, their father doesn't want him to treat them that way. And he calms them down with his words. He says, he reminds them that this is part of God's plan, that, uh, that they all came to Mitzrayim, and particularly him to Egypt, so that he could save the family from famine. He doesn't address uh, what happened directly. He just, again, guides another way of viewing it and reminding them that that's how he's choosing to live with it. Instead of being stuck in the reactivity and in the trauma and the potential of revenge and holding on to that for another 17 years. So let's just hold this for a minute that the brothers held that fear and guilt and silence for 17 more years. And then it's coming to a head now, excuse me, when the patriarch has passed. Yaakov, Israel has passed. So uh, this calms them down after Yosef says what he does, reminds them of God's plan. And Yosef goes on to see his great-grandchildren. He then also uh, makes his own family create an oath, uh, just like his father, that when he passes to take their bone to take his bones with them 
when they eventually leave Mitzrayim, Egypt, when, and then he dies, he passes, he goes to the ancestors um, and to Hashem. So um, this is a powerful, this is, this is the ending of the Yosef story that's held us for four parshiot, for uh, Torah portions, the end of Bereshit, of uh, the book of Genesis, the most long and powerful family story of our ancestors, of what ends up being the, the 12 tribes that uh, end up having um, a nachala, uh, um, inheritance in the ancestral land of the land of Canaan, which will become the land of Israel. So um, we have a lot going on here, but what I really want to focus on is really um, a couple, the complicated relations between Yaakov and his brothers. 17 years later, I want you to think in your own personal life, do you have difficulty with family, with siblings, and years and years later, it's still there. It's like the, that Batui, that idiom, that elephant is still in the room. No one is talking about, right? So earlier, the brothers um, actually hadn't sought forgiveness. They never said we were wrong. We shouldn't have thrown you in the pit and not responded to your cries for help. We shouldn't have had a meal. While you were crying in the pits, we shouldn't have sold you into slavery. Uh, I recognize in rabbinic exegesis, there's a question if they were the ones who did it or someone else pulled him out of the pit. But either way, they are responsible for how they treated him and then lying to their father and hiding this all those years. And then going down to live with Yosef in Egypt and apparently still not taking responsibility, still not uh, admitting what they did. I, I can't even imagine that type of silence, that burden that was carried. I mean, even try to imagine Yaakov coming down and being like, we thought you were dead. They, they brought your beautiful um, <clears throat> jacket with pasim, with stripes, right? The katonate, and it had blood all over it. We had assumed that you were uh, torn by a beast what happened? There was no question what happened. Yaakov, Israel, as far as we know, never doesn't even know. Doesn't It was never discussed or talked about. Uh, it, it, we assume it wasn't Lehefek because when he gave those um, final statements to each of his sons, he doesn't even mention what they did. And we believe in that moment he would have because he mentions Shimon and Levi and their rage and anger and a reminder of how they treated and murdered the people of Shechem, the men and boys. So um, imagine a family, he comes down, he doesn't even address how you're still alive, what happened, how you end up here. Why haven't you come to see the family all these years if you've been alive to let me know that you were alive? Like, do you know how much pain I've been living with? nothing. And then the brothers live another 17 years and even Yaakov before he passes, no taking responsibility, no uh, having this uh, just much needed discussion, right? So they've maintained an unbroken 
silence. And this is not, in a Musar perspective, silence is important. It's very important, mida, shtika. But it is one that has to be with healthy discernment. Uh, and there are times when one must speak. And this is, this is definitely one of them. So uh, throughout this uh, 17 years that elapsed since the day of, I guess we would call it, reconciliation, not teshuva, really, not repentance, um, that um, this, this nagging voice of consciousness comes right to us in this parsha, where the brothers now that the death of the patriarch, their father, has removed the you know, commanding presence, the container of uh, the patriarch, and now family cohesion is at the point of potentially falling apart. And the brothers anticipate Yosef's uh, revenge for what they committed against him and what they actually committed against God and, uh, and, and against their father, against the whole family, and not to mention humanity, right? And the animal that they uh, slaughtered and killed in the process to put blood on the jacket. I mean, there's just so much that when we commit crimes, that it has this ripple effect of affecting so many people and the earth and uh, animals and such. So um, this is what we're holding today is, is what happens here. And um, what's amazing, if you'll recall, um, is um, the key thing I want to point out here that we want to see if this is uh, something that we feel is appropriate to our own practice of Moser mindfulness is something that we feel is needed in our own life or maybe even still in society. So when the brothers um, send a message to Yosef, they say, um, bef- they, they send this message. So they essentially say, um, before his death, your father left this instruction. So shall you say to Yosef, forgive I urge you the offense and guilt of your brothers who treated you so harshly. Therefore, please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. Okay, obviously that statement is so much to unpack. Uh, you know, in some ways, if we want to practice most our mindfulness, like say we are someone that actually needs to be seeking forgiveness from our own siblings or family. We should be sending a message like this to ourselves of um, the instruction should be that we should seek forgiveness uh, for the offense and guilt of treating someone with harm and suffering, not like put the onus on the other person that, that they are to forgive us, right? So this is the first thing. It's amazing after 17 years. And then the key thing I want you to pay attention to is this language here, right? Um and just if if you're following along, we're on chapter 50, um, Pasuk, verse 17. And um, they're very key uh, key to say here, it's very important to say, to remind Yosef that forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father, right? Look at this language here, right? Lefesha avdeh Elohei avicha Yosef, right? Okay, then he goes on to, he's in tears, he cries, right? Um, 
Okay, this is very important, this idea, this, um, this using God language, uh, invoking God in order to, they, they are projecting, they have storytelling going on in their heads that he's going to um, extract revenge on them after 17 years. And that uh, they, they use the language of the only thing they think that will stop revenge behavior, which is God, the fear of God. The and, and, and to remind you, what does the fear of God mean? You're we're really going to delve into this coming into Shemot, into Exodus. The, I, the idea and the language of when our ancestors said fear of God is this idea, this really upright inner moral compass that you know right from wrong because you believe in God and believe that you have these shared values and, and submission and following to God. In, and you will not do what's wrong, okay? And so in this case, it would be wrong to extract revenge uh, on the brothers, to murder them, essentially. And so um, they are using the only thing left. That, they don't go to any other moral sensibility. They don't go and invoke the father. They don't invoke him and his own values. They evoke God, Okay. And this is very strong language, okay? So even Abravanel, our wonderful Spanish uh, Parshan, our commentator, I believe 15th century, I have to check. He, um, he, he points out here that the brothers don't evoke, invoke a claim of brotherliness. Like they don't say, we're your brother, love us, forgive us, whatever. They don't invoke a claim of that. And he believes since, because they've, they've internalized that they forfeited that brotherliness by their own actions. And then he goes on, they appeal to the respect and love for his father and to the religion that unites them all. Okay, this idea, once again, we meet the biblical idea of the consciousness of God, of the fear of God, right? As the most important factor controlling human behavior stronger than the ties of kinship jps is also reminding us of this in their wonderful commentary on bereshit on genesis and um i want us to hold on to that i want us to hold on to that concept of what is it that is such a strong moral compass for you personally in your practice and on this path towards holiness? And chapter 28, I'm just looking here. Um, what is it that um, essentially stops you from committing heinous crimes or reactivity that causes harm and suffering? Um, and is it a consciousness of God? Is it a fear of God? Is it a love, um, and respect of God, or is it something else? We have to be aware of that. And then if we do think that this is, we, we agree with and understand the, our ancestors and this biblical idea of this conscious God consciousness, right? As the most powerful factor that controls our behavior. Should it, do we believe it should be part of society and the people we surround ourselves with? 
stronger than anything else, stronger than ties of kinship. Uh, we have to think in the most horrible instances in human society of war, war that we're witnessing right now, of genocide, um, of famine and people not addressing it and helping it, whatever the instance might be, whether it's uh, uh, ignoring things or, or actually engaging in real acts of violence, uh, what is not stopping it? And, and would a healthy dose of God consciousness into our practice help? What stopped these genocides and things in the past? Was it that or was it um, the powerful hand of something like a patriarch? Are we perpetuating that old system of the patriarchy? Does it take a huge, powerful nation state that can stand over with horrible weapons that they actually used and dropped on people like the powerful patriarch that will contain the violence? Are we still in the same habitual patterns of controlling the Yetzer, the inclination, the wolves, the wolves and the bears within that either can lead us down horrible, harmful paths or the path towards good? We're probably not all that different from our ancestors. So what is it that we need to cultivate inside to control ourselves, to practice self-restraint, to forgive and to seek forgiveness, to do the opposite of causing harm and suffering, to bring God's good to others. This is our practice. This is what we're to learn from this week's Parsha. This is what Yosef, through his tears, is crying again. He's crying for us and with us. This is what is being taught right now, right? He, 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 he elides, elides uh, their anxiety at once. He has no interest in seeking revenge. The very idea actually offends him, his like personal inner theology, right? He's someone that's so practiced and been on this path so long. The tears, right? The tears. So uh, he really, he, 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 he just feels that uh, these brothers dare not usurp the prerogative of Hashem, of God, to whom alone belongs the right of punitive uh, vindication. This is what his words are when he even says, have no fear, am I substitute for God? He's passed it on. He leaves it to Hashem. You and what you did and your behavior will be addressed by God. It's between you and God, right? So. Um, he goes on to uh, just really recognize that human actions and their consequences have uh, are far more profound than just human intentions. The impact is stronger than the intention. And um, what Yosef has really internalized, as we saw this last week, is that God and Hashem used these evil acts, these evil purposes, right, of the brothers as instrument for ultimate good, instrument to send Yosef down to save lives, to save their lives, and also the ultimate to get the whole B'nai Israel, the whole family, the whole uh, kinship of the Hebrew people, the Jews down to Egypt for a much larger plan. So um, this is this is what I, I'm going to leave us with. Uh, um, and just noticing that we have to be very careful with the language of the Torah and even ourselves of being paying attention 
to, uh, you know, he says them, I will sustain you and your children. That was what he said 17 years ago. And um, this is puzzling to us because the famine ended long ago, right? So um, if anything, I think we're picking up a little hint of deterioration of how the Jews, Hebrews are being treated in Egypt by this point, which is foreshadowing, right? Of what ends up happening to our ancestors. Now with that, I invite you to move into your upright posture, an internal one that could be in a seated position or on the zafu, on a, a seating um, cushion down on the ground or your seat. It can be standing, it can be lying down or one of the four postures of mindfulness meditation of walking, not walking anywhere in particular, but walking for the sake of practice. So invite your upright posture right now, invite a sense of really that dignified pose that you are a child created in the image and likeness of the divine. And at the same time, inviting ease, relaxing into the posture. If you are like me seated in a chair, I invite you to move towards the front of the chair to not lean back because when we lean back, we're not in upright posture and we tend to get sleepy and fall into sloth and torpor. So do allow yourself to be on your seat bones, really sink in and feel held, round your feet into Mother Earth, holding you between heaven and earth, allowing your hands to settle wherever it is comfortable. I invite you also to put your hands on your chest to really hold you here, offer yourself the self-compassion that you may need today. So what is important today? What is it that we need in our practice? So much occurred in this Parsha, right? First, we want to tap into any stuck place that we may be feeling. So first, let's recognize the breath. Inhalation and exhalation, inviting presence. Exhalation, inviting ease, relaxing into the posture. Inhalation and now allowing with this last exhalation, your breath to reside, to fall to its own natural rhythm. And as we begin to scan our body from toe to head, what is here for us? What is real? Moving through each section. Where do you feel any sense of stuckness? Maybe it's emotions that are feeling lodged into yourself right now. Feeling the heat or the tightness or difficulty. Where are we getting caught in difficult emotion or perhaps difficult thoughts? Is there something that is habitually coming even in response to today's teaching? Were we triggered at all thinking of our own families? Are we in need of giving forgiveness or forgiving? Where are we stuck? Where are we doing storytelling? 
perhaps about our own families or situations. Allowing this particular situation in mind, one that activates a reactive pattern for you. It's important to select situations that don't set off trauma or emotions that are too intense or overwhelming to deal with in today's practice. Really using your own inner moral compass and your own intuition, that soft, still voice of God within that allows you to work through this meditation today. We will move into a few minutes of silence to really tap into recognizing the primary emotion or emotions activated within us. For those of you new to meditation, simply allow your breath or the sounds around you to be your anchor to what you direct your attention without judgments, without reactivity, without over-identifying, simply attempting to develop the muscle of observing looking at your practice and yourself with curiosity, the beginner's mind. And if and when your thoughts wander off, which they will, that is the nature of the mind. When you become aware of it, simply bring yourself back to your anchor, to the present moment. Simply begin again. It's very easy to get entranced in storytelling. We want to be sure that we just simply observe what is here for us without adding a story to it. So we do this by allowing, bringing our full attention to whatever feels most difficult right now in this moment. With the kavana, the intention of fully letting it be. Allowing is the willingness to pause, 
to stay present with whatever is here, right here and right now, just as it is. Bringing a gentleness and a tenderness, some helpful phrases to say to ourselves are, this too, I can hold this, yes. We are opening to our experience even when we are stuck or even when it is painful. And then as we investigate our felt, spend, our felt sense of this practice right now, of our experience, it is not a cognitive process, right? It's not our stories or our beliefs, what we may be sharing in our head with thoughts or storytelling. We keep returning our attention to the body, to the felt sense and sensations of where we feel vulnerable, where we feel stuck bringing a kind, kind, interested attention. Some questions that are helpful in your inquiry are, what is the worst part of this for me? What most wants my attention? What is the most painful or difficult thing that I am believing in this moment? What emotions are arising and where do I feel them? What do they feel like? And as we stay connected to this vulnerable experience inside, we ask for God's help and here and refuge and community together, this compassionate presence if the most vulnerable part of ourselves could communicate, what would it say right now? What do I most need in this moment? Allow yourself to adjust your posture if needed. Taking your breath consciously, inhalation and exhalation in a way that helps you fully contact your most awake experience of your heart. The awakened heart, the wise heart, this higher selves. Calling on our wisdom and compassionate self offer inwardly and outwardly to everyone who's joining you in this meditation today. Love, acceptance, forgiveness, compassion. We will take the next moments in silence to rest in the presence and the heart space of whatever has emerged. Relax and allow it to fill you.
even if you feel some new or residual difficulty, offer acknowledgement and care. When you are ready, you can gently and slowly open your eyes. Allow yourself an inner bow and a bow to God, Hashem, to the teachings, to the path, your teachers, to everyone who is joining us in this practice right now. Coming back into this sacred Zoom space live streaming. Thank you for your practice today. Thank you for committing to this awakening of Torah through Musar mindfulness. Again, I am Rabbi Chasio Uriel Steinbauer, grateful for your sponsorships to allow this awakening to happen every week and for your generous donations. I'm wishing you all well and look forward to practicing and learning together next week. Thank you. <laughs>